Hello and welcome to this episode of the John Henry Weston Show. I have a very sobering show for you today. We're going to talk about a tragic death, a death of a woman who begged to be given proper treatments for COVID. She wanted ivermectin, HCQ, and the whole lineup of the drugs she knew would work. But the hospital where she was, Resurrection Hospital in Chicago, so-called Catholic Hospital, refused to give her the treatments. Not only that, it got much, much worse. They actually refused to release her as well. She wanted out of that hospital. She begged to get out of that hospital. They refused, and she passed away this last Sunday. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Lee Valite, who intervened on the case, and her own power of attorney, Nancy Ross. You're going to want to stay tuned for this one. And we are very pleased to have with us today, Nancy Ross, who was with Veronica advocating for her as well as someone very well known to all of us here at LifeSite, Dr. Lee Valite. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, John Henry. And thank you to your audience and for all those who've um, reached out and expressed their condolences and fought right alongside Veronica. Let's begin as we always do here with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So, uh, Nancy, if I can just start with you, uh, perhaps you can just tell us, first of all, a little bit about yourself and about your relationship with Veronica. I've known Veronica for a couple of years. I met her through some mutual friends in Chicago, uh, my hometown, uh, former hometown. I'm now in South Carolina. And uh, she was admired by so many for her courage, for her fight for freedom. Uh, that's what really attracted me to her, her, her boldness, her wisdom. Um, you know, she stood strong in, in this incredible battle that we're seeing across the country where our constitutional rights are being violated. And she stood on that bridge overlooking uh, the Kennedy Expressway in Chicago with her banners that she handmade throughout the night. She hardly slept um, to educate people with messages of hope and um, of her bits of wisdom and she loved all people. She loved America. She loved her faith. And in the end, she fought till her death for medical freedom. Nancy, tell us how this progressed. What happened here? And uh, how in the world uh, did you get to the situation which we found ourselves on Sunday? It started August 17th. I received a text message from her. And we were in contact uh, very regularly, as she is, again, with people all around the world. Um, she said, I'm running a fever. I've started my ivermectin protocol. Uh, then she went to the hospital in the emergency room, my understanding is uh, three days later, and tested positive for COVID. She went home, had shortness of breath, was taken to the emergency room at a different hospital, and was admitted for COVID pneumonia. Although her x-ray um, was stated, and Dr. Vliet could explain this further, that it was possible chest congestion. So next thing we know, she's on a very high dose of oxygen. Um, I started receiving messages, get me out, get me out, get me oxygen, get me medical transport, get security here if you have to, get me out. And I said, what is going on? And uh, contacted her family and friends. Uh, there was some confusion over what type of protocol they were following at the hospital. We thought at first 
They were following uh, what the frontline doctors have put out, even something simple as IV vitamins. Uh, those were denied to her. Uh, she wanted her ivermectin. That was denied to her. She wanted so many things that were not part of the hospital's protocol. So we began this, this fight, this advocacy, and through um, the incredible help of Veronica's good friend, uh, General Flynn, he reached out to Tom Renz, an attorney in Ohio, who's been in some of these battles, a number of them. And uh, he brought in Dr. Lee Bleep from the Truth for Health Foundation uh, to give us a second opinion. And we surrounded ourselves. I was so blessed to have so many great um, doctors, nurses, lawyers in the Chicago area, too, um, just battling on her behalf. Uh, just recently, I don't know if you're aware, in Elmhurst, Illinois, a uh, court ordered the hospital there to allow a COVID patient to have ivermectin. Um, she ended up coming out of a coma, is my understanding, and is home playing with her grandkids. But this was so much more about the ivermectin. Um, it was about patients' rights. It was about my rights as her power of attorney and, and those who were advocating for her who seemed to be blocked at every turn. Now, that's really the incredible thing. Um, here you are, power of attorney, for the patient who's basically begging you to get her out of the hospital, and yet this is not accepted, this is not allowed, this is not permitted. How, how even does that happen? I don't know, John Henry. I, I understand it's going on across the country, in hospitals across the country. I got a call this morning, someone else saying, what do I do? Um, the first thing I did was try to understand what medicine she was receiving, and what she wasn't receiving, and then get advice on the outside. And something simple like budesonide is not part of their protocol, the nebulized budesonide, which I was told could really help her immediately open up her lungs. They said they had a generic brand they were giving her. I come to find out that may not be nearly as effective and perhaps even harmful. I don't know. I, we're still looking for those answers. By the end of my second day here, which was really maybe her 10th or 11th day in the hospital, when I got to Chicago, I was able to meet with the infectious disease doctor overseeing her care who did prescribe her ivermectin. We were thrilled she at least had a breakthrough. And then he was overruled by the Amita hospital system by their ethics committee. We demanded a conference with the ethics committee. They met without us. They did not give us a chance to present what we felt was some solid case study on ivermectin and other, other medicines. You know, We understand that if we had conform, informed consent on their position, we could refuse kindly and say, okay, but we still demand to try this. This is what she wants. Uh, something like ivermectin is already administered in the hospital to patients with other conditions. It just isn't part of their COVID protocol. So it wasn't banned. It's not banned by the government. It's been around a long time. And she wanted to try it. She had two doctors at that point who had already prescribed it to her. So um, at the end of that day, I left the hospital and they called to tell me I was not to come back in that they would deal directly with Veronica, that she was of sound mind and could make her own decisions, and that they would talk to me on the phone after that. I was not allowed back in the hospital. Um, the next day, I dropped off a list of um, a complaint to the Illinois Department of Public Health, but I wanted the hospital to be aware of some serious issues we were concerned about, and I wanted Veronica to have a copy so she could advocate, so she could understand. For example, we asked for private duty nurses to be as caretakers by her side in isolation to help her advocate and to keep her comfortable. She was very, very scared. She was terrified. And she felt they were constantly threatening her with intubation. 
until the very end, she said, no, I do not want to be on a ventilator. No. And she, she stood till the very end uh, fighting that. Let me ask you, Dr. Valit, you were involved in this process. You were consulting in this process. What was your experience of trying to deal with the hospital, trying to feed them the information? Um, and uh, what was the response? The Truth for Health Foundation advisory team, which includes critical care doctors, critical care nurses, outpatient nurse case managers, nurse practitioners, physicians, everyone on our team is very experienced at treating COVID at all levels, from critical care to outpatient. And we were asked to, by the attorneys, to review the medical records with the power of attorney giving permission for our nurse case managers to review the records and to make recommendations as to what was feasible, what was possible perhaps to be considered since Veronica was requesting to be transferred to outpatient care, what was possible and what could be mobilized quickly to help her. She was not intubated. That is a point at which we have no options in the outpatient setting. And she had refused that and her power of attorney had supported her. So when our team, and it was an entire team of people, this was not one physician. It certainly was not just me. It involved critical care physicians and nurses, and it involved the outpatient nurses and the patient's power of attorney, and a legal nurse consultant who is involved in evaluating case records in multiple hospitals was part of the team as well. When we reviewed everything on Thursday afternoon, it was encouraging because the consensus of the entire medical team reviewing it was that there were so many options to improve Veronica's clinical condition that had been totally ignored and refused, that our the consensus of our entire team, including the two critical care members of the team, was that she had a good chance at delivering the services in the outpatient setting. And we had the capability through contacts in our network to deliver the high flow oxygen in the outpatient setting, which a lot of people don't realize can be done. So everything was arranged, Nancy, with the providers, the medical professionals on the ground, licensed in Ohio. We gave her ideas of who to contact. We gave her suggestions on the kinds of resources. Nancy quickly mobilized all of that. So our meeting for three hours was Thursday afternoon. By Friday, Nancy had mobilized the boots on the ground team of medical professionals to handle the medications, nursing care, respiratory therapist, high flow oxygen, ambulance transport with BiPAP and anything else that was needed. And our critical care team said if they started budesonide quickly, they could help improve her respiratory status. And therefore, that would improve her oxygenation. She also not getting adequate caloric or IV fluids. So there were many things that could be done. 
But over the course of being involved in the background as advisors to Nancy, the nurses and the team members through our public charity foundation were stymied at every turn. And what was shocking to me as a physician, knowing what the legal and medical ethics are, is that the most astounding interference was the interference and refusal to honor the patient's request, which I heard some of, and not only that, but to refuse the patient's power of attorney who has a legal duty as the agent to carry out the patient's wishes and to see that that is done. I have not in ever in my career in medicine, which goes back to starting practice in 1985 and being on medical school faculties and hospital care before that, I've never seen patients' power of attorney legal rights overridden so flagrantly and abusively as we witnessed over this four days with Veronica's situation. And now, just this morning, I've been contacted, our foundation has been contacted by attorneys asking for our help for the same situation where the patient's power of attorney in Georgia is being refused access to the hospital, being refused access to carry out her power of attorney duties to her parents, both of whom are in the hospital. And the situation in Florida, exactly the same pattern of abuse of patient rights. This is medical tyranny. It is overriding all of the legal and medical ethical principles that have been operative for my entire career and for my knowledge of the history of medicine in this country. And this is truly stunning. People don't understand what is happening. And the hospitals in the five situations that our foundation was involved in from the time Nancy brought was brought to us by the attorneys in the five hospital situations, they are using the same tactics and the same playbook and the same blocking of the patient's rights and the power of attorney access to the patient in exactly the same way. And this happened at um, two hospitals in Phoenix and the patient there is going to pursue not only legal action, but we've gotten some state senators involved and the state of Arizona attorney general will be involved in looking into those situations because in that one situation, the patient what they called the sheriff or the police, I'm not clear which, and she was taken off the hospital campus at Mayo Scottsdale in handcuffs, which is unconscionable. And I'm shocked that a facility with the reputation that they have would do that. So this is a much bigger issue than simply denying ivermectin as one medicine. They are not giving basics. In Veronica's case, we saw evidence in the medical record of rising white counts and no attempt at all to consider even an antibiotic that we could see. So, and I don't want to get into the details of the medical records because I think that is a privacy issue for Veronica 
And I'm sure that there are legal issues that will the family will pursue. So I don't want to discuss that here. My point is basics are being denied. Adequate IV fluids, adequate caloric intake, vitamins, comfort care with allowing private duty nurses if that's what the patient wants, allowing the patient to be discharged to home hospice, which is a legal right of the patient. And that is the patient's request that is supposed to be honored. It's always been in my experience in medicine that that was honored. And so I think the very, very serious and very chilling development is the consistency of the pattern that hospitals are using, the fact that the patient's legal rights as a patient are being overridden, the fact that power of attorney legal documents are being thrown out and ignored. And if we don't stand up to this medical tyranny, then we are literally losing people every day because their wishes are not being followed and basic treatments are being ignored. And this situation in Georgia right now is exactly the same progression that Nancy was documenting in the Resurrection Hospital in Chicago. And the other shocking thing that I want to bring out for your audience, particularly on LifeSite News, and, and I'm Protestant, but I have many patients who are Catholic and their faith means the world to them. She was in a Catholic hospital. She was a woman whose Catholic faith meant the world to her. We found no indication that they even allowed a priest to visit her over the weekend, and certainly not on Sunday. It was our team that arranged for one of our Catholic sisters as an advisor to our foundation, and she's also a physician. She is a Catholic nun, and she treats COVID patients and ministers to them spiritually. And thank goodness God intervened. And I was on a call with Nancy about the power of attorney issues. And like sister called in to see if she could help. And Nancy was able to get on the phone with Veronica's phone and let Veronica know that she at least had a Catholic sister praying with her. And we could tell that she could acknowledge that there was a FaceTime set up on the technology. But to deny that patient in a Catholic hospital a visit by a priest is something so monstrous, I can't wrap my mind around it. This whole situation is so unbelievable. And, and we have to stress that it's, it's happening all over the United States right now. Um, as we speak, there are literally uh, cases going on right now with the same thing and perhaps the same result. In, in Veronica's tragic case led to her death, uh, being untreated, begging to receive the treatments that you and your team, Dr. Valid, have, have made so available for everyone to show them how to defeat COVID, even serious cases of COVID. But when the hospital refuses to then refuse to let the patient go, and be treated elsewhere or be treated at home or whatever. It's, 
It's unfathomable. And on top of that, this is resurrection, supposedly Catholic hospital in Chicago who don't provide spiritually for their patient who's dying either. That was heartbreaking. That was heartbreaking to me. And, and what I will also say is that none of us ever would hold out false hope to any patient. We were very clear from the very first meeting with Nancy that there, there are no guarantees. It's a very risky situation. We, we gave it our best medical combined opinion of the whole team. It was consensus. And we said, she may not make it. But the patient has the right to choose. If they may not make it, they have the right to choose to breathe in freedom in their last breaths in this world. They have the right to choose to be in a home care setting. None of us would ever make a false promise. But we said, it's up to her to decide if she wants to take the risk, here's the best support we can give for her to have her wishes met. That's the bottom line. What are her wishes? And I must have said that a hundred times over the course of a very long and very emotionally difficult and medically challenging weekend where we were all trying to help. Let her have her wish to die at home with her family. If she's not going to make it, we can't control what God's decision is on the timing of our life. But we certainly can control whether the patient gets to be with her loved ones. What you described with the you saw Sunday afternoon, Nancy, I want you to share with our audience what you saw when you quickly made it to the hospital before they escorted you out with security. And I'll back up just before that, Dr. Vliet, and we were so blessed, again, to have you. That afternoon, we did talk with um, the woman at the time who's her attending physician, and she said, look, we know Veronica wants to leave. She has asked almost every day to leave on hospice. She can't. She's in no condition to go. And that's when we said we have a medical transport ambulance that can meet her oxygen needs. We understood they were quite high, but she said today today. I want to go today. She knew the end was coming. And I was told, call back Monday morning when their hospice team gets in. And I, I couldn't understand why there was no sense of urgency to at least let her, let her go in peace. Um, so when I felt these were the final hours, I called her husband and I said, Larry, I don't think we have much time. Um, visiting hours close at six. And so he tried to reach out to the doctor and I went to the hospital and just then someone was coming out um, and I went in and there was no security right there. So I thought I would go up to the second floor to ICU and see if I could see her. I put on my mask, took my temperature, walked up, walked down the hall and I saw her nurse sitting at her computer and Veronica was in the dark and all the red lights were flashing on her machines and there was no um, IV fluid. I noticed right away, I thought, I'm sorry. So I had my last um, demand letter and I gave that to the charge nurse. I said, please, can you do something? Sorry. And um, the, the resident was too busy and he was gonna call me later. So I went outside and I called the police. And um, it was the second time, a week earlier, I had gone to the police station 
And they said there was nothing they could do. It was a civil matter. But I said, again, I, I want an officer here. I want to do a wellness check immediately. Um, someone's dying and nobody seems to care. And um, all they were concerned about was whether or not she wanted a ventilator at that point. It is absolutely unbelievable. Dr. Valid, I want to ask you a question specifically about this request uh, that they take ventilators, because what is the interest of a hospital in insisting that these patients go on ventilators? Why is this request so frequent? Why is this insisted upon, even though patients are very often saying, no, don't want that, yet the hospital's insisting? There's a very tragic and simple answer. They are paid thousands of dollars more for every patient on the ventilator. And this is happening in every hospital. Tom Renz, the attorney who has been advocating for these families, has been helping to arrange legal help, has documented, and he will do an interview with you. He has documented the huge amount of dollars that are paid extra for remdesivir, ventilators, and COVID diagnoses. And that is a that is an issue that needs more in-depth exposure because it does need to be made public how much the hospitals are paid as a differential increase the moment the patient is put on a ventilator. In every situation that we've been involved in recently, the patient was coerced into being put on a ventilator without looking at other options. And Tom Renz has more details that he's been involved in that he can talk about and what is actually happening that's leading to the increase in that situation. And since I was not directly involved in the situations he was, I would prefer that he address that. It is unbelievable to think that a hospital could, for reasons of financial gain, put someone's life at risk. But that being said, we have seen doctors everywhere ignoring the treatments that work, that you provided with Dr. McCullough that you wrote up is in medical journals and they work to treat COVID. It's known, at least it should be known, given the thousands of doctors that have successfully used the treatments, even with severe cases of COVID, and yet that's being ignored and costing the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. So I guess in that light, the idea that someone or a hospital might insist for the sake of more money uh, on a ventilator when the patient is not wanting it and can't his medical team that is advising such, such as your team uh, might suggest there are better methods. The majority of primary care doctors in the United States now, and this has escalated since the healthcare law of 2010, are employees of large primary care outpatient practice groups. Most of the large groups are actually owned by the hospital systems. You can start getting an investigative reporter looking into this. Figure is somewhere around 80 to 85% of outpatient physicians 
are actually employed. And if you start looking at the corporate entities involved, it ultimately tracks back to big health systems own the outpatient practices. And in Arizona, in one of the large practices, which happens to be where I have my own primary care, my own primary care physician thanked me for, because I'm independent, I'm not an employee of a large health system owned practice. And he thanked me for prescribing the hydroxychloroquine for a particular patient. And we were using it for several reasons, not just COVID. But he said, our administrator has forbidden us to use hydroxychloroquine. This was last fall before ivermectin attention became more the focus. And he said, our administrator has forbidden us to write prescriptions for hydroxychloroquine, except for rheumatoid and lupus or malaria prophylaxis. So all of the proper off-label uses of hydroxychloroquine for many things that many of us have done for years was forbidden to this group of doctors by corporate interference with their ability to practice independent medical judgment. That's another issue that the public doesn't know. So the hospitals, the large health systems are actually controlling the outpatient practices and directing them not to do the outpatient care. And that drives everybody into the box canyon of the hospital where the diagnosis of COVID increases the revenue the use of remdesivir, which is the protocol they're all using, increases the revenue. And where as soon as they can get them on a ventilator, it increases the revenue. So it's a much bigger picture than the public knows. And that's why your work at LifeSite News to expose this is critically needed. The public needs to understand that the, the hospitals are Patients are prisoners of protocols. They are not being treated as individual patients for this situation. Nancy, your reflections on uh, Veronica. I know you two were close. And uh, tell us, if you would, in your own words, uh, who is Veronica Wolski? She's an American hero. And she, I believe she, she hears us. She knows all the people around the world who are fighting with her and She'll, she'll fight. She'll continue to fight by our side. I know that. I feel her spirit. I had a chance um, in those few moments at the hospital to pray and to smile and blow her kisses. And, and I could see her eyes fluttering. She was, she was looking towards the glass. She moved in the bed. And I, I do believe I could see her smile through her mask. I know she, she knows, she feels all your support. She's courageous, a warrior. She loved God and loved our country so much. And, um, and her work will continue. And, and she did not die in vain. And that, that I do know. Um, we will make sure of that in our commitment for Truth for Health Foundation to fight against the medical tyranny. And whatever we are honored to do to carry on Veronica's memory, we will do that. And we will have more information on that real soon. John Henry, thank you. Um, we, people are asking how to help and what they can do in her memory and in her honor and for all those who are still fighting. And it's super, very important that we, we get that out. Nancy Ross and Dr. Lee thank you so much for being with us on this episode of the John Henry Weston Show. Thank you, John Henry. John Henry, in honor of Victoria's fight,
for freedom. Thank you for being her voice now. Amen. God bless you both. And God bless all of you. We'll see you next time. Hi, this is John Henry Weston, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News. I'm coming to you today because we want to be sure that we're communicating clearly with you, our loyal followers. Things are really heating up, as I'm sure you can see. Christians, conservative truth-tellers are being targeted, are being banned from social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram at an alarmingly fast rate. They are attempting to suppress any narrative that does not fit that of the mainstream media. We knew this day would come. We have been warning everyone who would listen and attempting to build up alternative platforms to continue to reach you. We have established ourselves on all sorts of platforms I'm going to explain in a minute, but the most important thing to do is come direct to LifeSiteNews.com because there we will always be. But we've also established ourselves on platforms like Parler and MeWe, and our videos can be found on Rumble as well. We would love to see each of you on those platforms too, as they are not censoring or suppressing the truth that we are sharing every single day. More than these alternative social media platforms, we highly encourage you to subscribe to our email newsletter. We have really built up a large list of loyal readers on our email marketing platform, and we have prepared several backup plans for, well, I want to say if, but it's really when, we are removed from our current platform as well. Additionally, I really encourage you, as I said before, to make it a regular habit to go directly to lifesitenews.com. Make it your homepage. While all of these different platforms are an excellent way to curate your news, going directly to our website means that you will never encounter any censorship or sudden loss of LifeSite News reporting. Here's the thing. We will never stop sharing the truth. We founded this organization with the mission to be the life, family, and culture source for men and women who seek to know the truth. We have established a track record of honest reports, and this will never stop, even with censorship happening around the globe. Again, I'm encouraging you to join us on Parler, MeWe, Rumble, and on our email list. You can find all the direct links in the description of this video. May God bless you and keep you, and we are so thankful that you've chosen to follow and support LifeSite News. I'm John Henry Weston, co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News.